And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, July 20th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, Homeland Security is finally off the dime with regulations on sensitive information. Plus, why the U.S. should consider a completely different military strategy to deal with China. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, agencies continue to lay out return-to-the-office plans. Now the National Science Foundation expects all teleworking employees to start coming into headquarters offices more often. NSF's is a long line of re-entry announcements from agencies, but this time the agency is getting some serious pushback from its union. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman joins me with more. And just begin, if you would, Drew, by outlining the changes. They're not exactly asking people to traipse in 10 days out of the pay period, are they? No, it doesn't sound like a lot. It's going to be four days per two-week pay period. That's how much NSF employees are going to be expected to report to the office. And this applies to NSF employees who are working at agency headquarters in the D.C. area. The change will take effect on October 23rd this year, so there will be a few months before we see that actually take effect. But in an email to all staff just recently, the two top leaders at NSF said that the idea here is to strengthen NSF culture. They talked about maintaining the business needs of the agency while also maintaining workplace flexibility. So they ensured the employees that there would be a permanent hybrid work schedule going forward. But that at the same time, there's this opportunity now to start reestablishing this in-person expectation as well. So four days out of 10 doesn't sound like a horrible burden, but the AFGE says they're not happy with it. What's their issue? The big sticking point here for AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees, they said that the announcement from NSF leadership was made before the union was able to negotiate over the topic. So the announcement from the leadership, it is going to impact bargaining unit employees at NSF. But the union leaders said that there were only some initial conversations that took place before the announcement was made. Jesus Soriano, who is the president of AFGE Local 3403. He says that the return to office announcement, he called it nonsensical and says that telework was, you know, a really good flexibility for the agency during the pandemic. And even if from his perspective, four days per two week pay period doesn't sound like a whole lot, he said that it's still going to change the the landscape for these employees. Treating employees as uh, numbers on a spreadsheet. Instead of brilliant scientists and engineers and innovators, who are critical for discharging the the NSF mission. So there's a large group of employees for which there will be very big impact. And we have proposed to NSF all kinds of uh, flexibilities, but we have not agreed to anything yet. Well, of course, they were brilliant scientists before the pandemic and everyone was teleworking. So I don't know what exactly has changed, except things getting back to normal. And they're not alone, as we said at the top. A lot of agencies have announced return to the office. Give us a rundown. What's the latest tally here, Drew? I don't have an exact number for you, Tom, but there are a lot of agencies who have been week by week or day by day announcing their return to office plans. And I think we're going to see a lot more of this coming up in the coming weeks or months. This fall seems to be about the time that agencies are going to start making these changes. But some that have made their announcements already are USAID, we have FEMA, 
the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the VA, Environmental Protection Agency, and the Department of Agriculture. And all of these agencies, the the through line is is pretty similar. Most are expecting employees to return to the office, maybe just a couple more days per week or per pay period. So they all are remaining on this hybrid work schedule where employees will still be able to telework, but just less often. And this is, of course, coming after that OMB memo from this spring, which told agencies to ramp up their meaningful in-person work and kind of measure productivity levels, delivery of services, and make changes to their office schedules where it was needed. Yeah, this is also 2010 sounding. And we should also point out that, as you reported earlier, the U.S. Agency for International Development, they've also reached out to contractors, many of whom are in the offices along with USAID people and saying, hey, you better review your own telework policies because, again, cohesion, communication, the culture, all these things they cited for contractors. So it's not just federal employees that are getting this pressure. And getting back to AFGE, what's going to happen now? There's kind of a standoff here. There is still a little bit of a question mark here for NSF employees. Soriano, who's the AFGE uh, representative for NSF employees, he said that they are putting together a counter-proposal with more flexibility for NSF employees that I would imagine he he didn't give the details yet, but it would probably increase telework or maintain telework levels where they are. And he's hoping to meet with management to discuss what his perspective on things. They're also considering a couple different legal options or the possibility of bringing this up to the FLRA if it comes to that. But of course, we don't really know exactly how this is going to play out. But for now, the the word on the street is uh, NSF employees back to the office two days per week starting in October. I guess one difference maybe between NSF, say, and as you mentioned, Veterans Affairs at Veterans Affairs, most of their big medical centers throughout the pandemic had to, by definition, have large percentages of the staff in the buildings anyway, because nurses, doctors, technicians, orderlies, et cetera, et cetera, all have to be there. And so relatively fewer people were teleworking full time, maybe not so much at headquarters, but in the VA medical centers. NSF, there is no operational part of it. And so, well, they do have a C-130 airplane they fly around, but basically it's, it's all office headquarters work. So a little bit of a right. nuance it, it, there. It really does depend on the position and the agency for, you know, what they're going to be looking at, how they're going to be measuring the value of telework and the value of in-office work. For NSF, they do have a lot of scientists, engineers, things of that nature. They do have people who are working remotely across the country it's not going to apply in the same way to everyone, but just that those at headquarters. And, and as you said, the work is not necessarily as hands-on as the VA. Well, what we don't need is artificial intelligence. What we do need is teleportation, and everybody be happy to go to work. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, why the U.S. should consider a completely different military strategy to deal with China. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Navy's carriers and submarines might be the most technically sophisticated in the world, but they're also the most expensive. And my next guest argues they might not be the most effective in dealing with the rise of China. 
Alternative strategies and technologies exist. Dan Grazier is the military fellow at the Project on Government Oversight, and he joins me now. Dan, good to have you back. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. And you're looking at these carriers, which cost, well, the price tag is $13 billion. It's really untold numbers of billions. I think the Ford is 20 years in testing. I don't even think it's deployed yet. Submarines at $4 billion apiece and so on. So you're arguing for a different approach to equipment. But let's talk about the different approach maybe to China in the first place that you're questioning, which is to seem to be able to take them on head on in a sea and land war. Correct. The current narrative in Washington defense circles is, you know, a rising China presents this imminent military threat to the United States. And the only way to really deal with that is head on, which is essentially attacking directly into China's strongest military position, which, you know, throughout military history, such a strategy rarely works out for, for the for the attacker. In that role. And that's not really what China is planning to do to invade the United States. What you're saying is that their strategy is keep everybody away from here and we can shoot you if you come too close. And maybe that's something we should think about as a sustainable strategy for ourselves. Exactly. You know, throughout China's history, there's only been a tiny handful of instances where the Chinese have been the aggressors beyond their borders. Uh, you know, the, the history of China is the Chinese trying to maintain control over their own territory. Their edges. Right. And that's what they're doing now. But, you know, in the 21st century, it's a very sophisticated defensive network that they're establishing with their anti-access area denial strategy. You know, they have a lot of missiles. They're just trying to keep outsiders as far away from their shores as possible. Yet we're continuing to sink untold billions, tens, hundreds of billions of dollars into this strategy to attack directly into that defensive network. Right. And of course, we also have a different type of network than they do so far. And that is we're in NATO and we are kind of pledged to be the umbrella for a lot of different places. So could an adaptation of the Chinese strategy work for the United States? That is to say, to have that denial of access, not just for the two main coasts of the United States, but say Japan or Taiwan it's possible. I think such a strategy would, would look very different for the United States and its allies. And that's why I suggest in my report that the United States and its allies adopts a kind of a spoiling strategy as far as naval affairs go. And the best tool for that are submarines, but not necessarily the $300 billion Virginia-class attack submarines. There are other options that are hugely effective. The Swedish have built a number of air-independent propulsion attack submarines. Submarines. They're a lot smaller. They're a lot less expensive than the nuclear attack submarines. And so we could buy them in numbers that would really matter. And particularly for our allies, instead of asking the Australians to buy five Virginia-class attack submarines, and it's unclear if our own shipyards can even provide those, you know, instead of buying five of those for the same cost, they could have upwards of 30 air-independent propulsion attack submarines, which would be hugely effective spoiling weapons for any potential Chinese naval aggression. We're speaking with Dan Grazier, senior military fellow at the Project on Government Oversight. So these submarines that the Swedish have, when you say air independent, the United States has always had either diesel, which are no longer in existence, which have to be on the surface for a certain amount of time, or nuclear, which stay under for months. These are things that can stay under for a long time 
and don't need to breathe on the air to run their engines. Correct. You and know, they're not battery-powered either. Not exactly. So an air-independent, a modern air-independent propulsion submarine, it runs on diesel, but also liquid oxygen. Uh, so you use that for combustion, and there's a couple different ways. The, the Swedish submarines use a Stirling engine. It's older technology where you heat up an expansion chamber, which then creates mechanical propulsion. and uh, you know, through, Somehow it turns a screw at the it, back. It does. The screw is turned by an electric motor, but the Stirling engine is what, that's what powers the generator to create that charge for, the, for propulsion and then for all the ship systems. But it's a so it really, gets its oxygen from within the system and not from the air. Correct. Got it. Okay. Right. And so it can remain submerged for upwards of like two weeks, like 14 days. Some of the specifics are classified, but around two weeks is the publicly available information we have. It sounds like the best thing since the Wankel, I was going to say, if anyone (laughs) remembers the Wankel engine. Probably not. Just me. But the United States would have to change not only technology and training, but basic doctrine for what a submarine is and what it does. Right. You know, to be clear, I'm not suggesting that we abandon nuclear submarines because especially for the United States with the Pacific on one side and the Atlantic on the other, you know, we need to have, you know, a capability to bridge that distance. But, you know, we also have allies in the region. If we're talking about the Western Pacific, we have United States territories in the Western Pacific that could be used as operating bases for these submarines. But yes, it would be a doctrinal shift. There would definitely have to be, you know, an increased capacity as far as schools and things like that in the Navy to operate these. But if we trade some other structure, you know, mentioned the $13 billion plus nuclear aircraft carriers that are hugely vulnerable to these very type of air independent propulsion submarines. There's a famous story about the USS Ronald Reagan being sunk, and I'm using the finger quotes, by Swedish submarines a number of times, and they could never- In exercises. In exercises, right. And the carrier was never able to find these very quiet little attack submarines that the Swedish have. But I think it would be worth it over time to adopt this different strategy by changing some of our spending priorities. I think we could save a lot of money, which would be good, but we'd have a much more effective spoiling capability to any potential Chinese you know, aggression. We should be adopting a defensive strategy. Um, or a deterrent strategy. Right, a deterrent strategy. That's probably a better word for it. But it would help, I think, kind of de-escalate some of, you know, some of the tensions that exist between the United States and China right now. Because in the long run, a direct military confrontation between the Chinese and the United States benefits no one, which is one of the reasons I think that the Chinese still, 70-plus years you know, on, have not invaded Taiwan. They haven't even been able to capture any of the, obviously not the main island of Taiwan, but even the smaller islands that are within visual distance, artillery range of the main mainland of China. Those are difficult propositions. But beyond that, it doesn't make any political or economic sense to have that kind of direct military confrontation. And of course, our procurement system are geared around to what they're geared around. So I would think that would need to change because what you're implying is that large numbers of more nimble types of weapons, both to operate and to maintain and to acquire, means that you've got numbers where we have great power but smaller numbers. And I mean, isn't there also the idea that numbers matter in any kind of conflict? And also large numbers give you greater flexibility. Right. Numbers do matter, particularly in naval in naval campaigns. One of the pieces I cite in my big report was a report done by a naval historian who found that I think it was in 28 
naval campaigns that he studied, the larger force won in 25 or 26 of them. And the exceptions were a long, long time ago, and there were a whole lot of extenuating circumstances. So the larger fleet does win. One side had metal, and one side had wood. Right. It would have been it, <laughs> yes. It was something. It, 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 there was there was some very major offset that accounted for that those anomalies. But right now, you know, if you think about the fact that we're on the cusp of an eight hundred billion dollar defense budget, that supports a fleet of fifty nuclear attack submarines. Which is not that many, you know, particularly when you think that fleet has to be split between two different oceans. Right. And uh, now the balance of that is in the Pacific, but that's still less than 30 submarines. And in a 10 to 1 cost ratio, you could have a lot of these. Yes. And it's not just sheer numbers. You have to think about the effect on military operations when you have those bigger numbers. So if you have a smaller fleet of, of more sophisticated you know, weapons, those more sophisticated weapons present a bigger challenge. But because there's, so, there's fewer of them, that's an easier problem set for the adversary to deal with. When you are able to flood the zone with a whole bunch of weapon systems, then you create just this myriad of problems that eventually just becomes overwhelming for the enemy to deal with. You overwhelm his defenses and you overwhelm his ability to even mentally deal with that, with that challenge. Plus, if they sink a carrier, well, it's not World War II anymore. You want to build a new one. Yeah, we'll, we'll be ready in 20 years with it. Right. The USS Ford was laid down in 2009, and the Ford actually left on its first full-scale deployment at the beginning of May of this year. Right. So you're talking 13, 14 years from... It was already rusty by the time it <laughs> exactly. went out. Exactly. And so it just takes forever for the United States to build these kind of things. You know, uh, you know go back to my one of my favorite topics, the F-35. That contract was awarded in October of 2001. We are now in July of 2023. That program has still not met the criteria for four-way production. Well, we'll leave it there. <laughs> Some good thought. Dan Grazier is Senior Military Fellow at the Project on Government Oversight. Thanks so much, as always. Hey, Tom, thanks for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his essay at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, meet the man who transformed NASA, no less. But first, Homeland Security is finally off the dime with regulations on sensitive information. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. It only took six years, but now the Homeland Security Department has new regulations covering how contractors must handle CUI, controlled unclassified information. Better get ready. They go into effect later this month. Here with what you need to prepare, Holland and Knight attorney Eric Crucius. Eric, good to have you back. Great to be here. Thanks. And I guess these rules have been a long time in preparation, but the surprising thing about them is... Everyone expected them to be connected to the standards developed by NIST under 800-171 special publication, which is in the midst of revision right now. But that's not really the case, is it? No. DHS went in a completely different direction. They explain why in the rules they've done that. But they're really focusing on the standards that they've been developing and have developed. So the interesting thing is this regulation is a little new where it's doing something that the first CMMC rule did and also the rule about vaccine mandates did. And it's pointing to a website. And I don't know if that's consistent with the Administrative Procedures Act. We'll see if somebody wants to argue that in court. 
But it points to a website, and the website will have all the standards that contractors have to comply with. And DHS says in the lead-up to the rule in the document that they put out that those standards are currently undergoing revision. So a contractor conceivably will have to comply with a different standard from one day to the next because the standards are being revised right now. But you're right. They went on to a different direction, didn't use 800-171, which was a little surprising. Well, did they use standard rulemaking? That is to say, did they get comments? Did they get back with comments? I mean, over six years, some of the comments are probably obsolete. So in that sense, they did follow the Administrative Procedures Act. Yes. They went through the whole notice and comment period, and they got comments. And you're right, some of the comments were obsolete. The thing that I'm kind of concerned about is that the rule is going to change over time without going through notice and comment period because that website is going to link to standards that change. So contractors who have requirements right now, those requirements could be different next month or next year because the link to the website the standards on that website will change. Sounds like that leaves contractors open to a little bit of capriciousness then, if that's the case. Well, you sent this in, but guess what? It changed since you sent in your proposal. Sorry. Right, right. And it'd be interesting to see kind of how that juxtapose works and how DHS handles that and if it varies between contracting officer to contracting officer. And all that combined with the, like you mentioned, the new 800-171 standard coming out, there's a lot going on for contractors to look at right now. And so what standards does it reference? Homeland Security's specific handling of data standards then, right? Right. There are specific uh, standards that they mentioned that are on their website, security directives 11042.1, and 11056.1, and really there's about a dozen other different standards that contractors need to be aware of. And has anyone compared them to NIST at all? Do they have any consonance with what NIST is doing or what's out there now? Not that I've seen, and that's a great weekend project, so I'll put that on my list to do, (laughs) because I've wanted to do that with the VA regulations also, which also don't use 800-171 as the baseline standard. um, Yeah, I've seen that in other domains of acquisition where agencies will add their own little embellishment to the FAR. Right. You already have the DFAR, but that's well understood. But then there's the energy FAR or the EPA FAR and the DHS FAR. It gets to be kind of tough navigating for contractors. Right. And if you remember, years ago, the FAR was created to create this one standard across the government. So you would need government contracts, lawyers to figure out what to do. And then each agency went and did its own thing anyway. And I think we're seeing the same thing with cybersecurity here, where the FAR Council has been a little bit slow in putting out a standard that works across the government for controlled unclassified information. DOD has been slow in rolling out CMMC. So you know, filling the void are these other agencies like DHS and the VA with their own standards because they recognize that they need to protect their information and need to do it right now. And what do these rules actually ask contractors to do in general? They all kind of follow a similar formula. They ask contractors to buy by certain standards, security standards. They also ask contractors to respond and to make them aware of cybersecurity incidents. The definition of a cybersecurity incident in the DHS rules is pretty broad. It includes not following certain policies, spillage internally in, in the contractor, uh, where you know CUI goes from one part of the business to another where it's not supposed to be. And then employee, kind of employee onboarding. You know, if they're going to be handling certain kinds of information, they need to have training and the agency needs to be aware if they're kind of let go, things like that. Sure. So there's, there's standard common themes that are in all these regulations, but they're all different. We're speaking with attorney Eric Crucius. He's a partner at Holland and Knight. So in their solicitations and contracts, DHS will be requiring compliance with these standards. So contractors in their bids simply need to say, yes, we are in compliance with these. We are following these directives of 
the 4700 series, dot, dot, dot. Right, right. And contractors, by kind of taking on a contract with these regulations in them, will implicitly at least acknowledge that they are complying with these regulations. And DHS knows that this is not an inexpensive proposition for contractors, and they say that in the rule, that they recognize that this is going to be expensive, and they expect that that expense will be reflected in the price of these contracts to DHS. And you mentioned CMMC, the DOD program, which doesn't seem to be getting quite off the ground, the uh, Cybersecurity Model Maturity Certification Program. It's like a helicopter spinning, but it never quite leaves the (laughs) the tarmac there. (laughs) And that has third-party verification as part of that program, which says we can prove that we do these things because someone objective looked at us. There's nothing like that in these DHS rules. For the vast majority of companies, that is true. There's a small subset. If you are a contractor that is operating or running a federal system, you will have some kind of third-party verification that's required. Just because you brought up CMMC, I have to say something about it. But the really interesting thing about CMMC is DOD may require contractors to do a third-party certification even in advance of CMMC because the new NIST 800-171 has a control that requires third-party verification of systems. And the DFARS clause that implements 800-171 says that the version of NIST 800-171 that's applicable is the one – at the time of the solicitation. So once that new 800-171 comes out, there's an argument to be made, unless DOD issues a class deviation, that all contractors, DOD contractors with CUI, will have to get a third-party certification. Yeah, so it's like CMMC by default almost. Right, exactly. And in delaying all of this till now, but yet coming out by DHS ahead of what DOD might or may not be doing, it sounds like each agency has been waiting on the other one to step out into this first. And DHS said, well, Screw it. We'll go first. (laughs) Right. And I kind of think like they're all kind of holding each other up a little bit for a while, and that's why it took six years. I mean, these rules are sophisticated and they're not easy, but six years is a long time, and I know they were working diligently on them, so it must be that they were trying to coordinate, and they're trying to see where the new FAR upcoming, whatever our upcoming FAR rules are, what direction they're going in, where DOD is going. And eventually, I think you said, I think you're exactly right. They said, we just got to do something. So in the meantime, right now, then, contractors need to develop almost boilerplate language that says, yes, we are doing this according to this rule. That's something they should be composing right now. Right. And they should be looking at the standards that DHS has right now, see if they're compliant. And for contractors that play across different agencies, it's really difficult because they have different standards for different CUI depending on which agency they're connected with. Right, because you said earlier the definitions of what comes under CUI differ from agency to agency. Right. So DOD uses the CUI registry, and DHS does to some extent. It uses parts of it, and it's not entirely clear whether it uses all of it. The general definitions are similar, but there are some nuance I think contractors should look at. Yeah, this does sound like a lot of manpower required to make sure that with each agency, and now DHS, you are following the clauses they want. Right. And I think each agency is really paying close attention because these rules are very important to them. Cybersecurity is really important, and they spent a lot of time issuing these regulations not to just have them ignored. Yeah, I mean, that's right. At the heart of all this, there is a cybersecurity problem, which everybody recognizes, but it seems like a Byzantine way of getting at it. Right. It would have been great if the FAR Council came out first and issued some regulations, and that enabled kind of the individual agencies to stand down. Now, DHS argues that these regulations are supplementary to uh, the CUI regs that may come out from the FAR Council. 
because they cover different things. We'll have to wait and see if that's really the case. Attorney Eric Crucius is a partner at Holland and Knight. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, meet the man who transformed NASA, no less. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The 2003 crash of the space shuttle Columbia sparked big changes at NASA. That's when its engineering and safety center got established to provide safety oversight and a culture more attuned to safety. My next guest was the lead guy for the Engineering and Safety Center, and now he's a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. NASA's former chief engineer, Ralph Rowe Jr., joins me now. Mr. Rowe, good to have you with us. Uh, Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. And congratulations on your recent retirement after a long career, mostly with NASA, right? Or all with NASA? All with NASA, yes. Thank you. All right. So tell us what happened in terms of the agency's reaction to Columbia, because this was just, you know, a shocking and, and heartrending worldwide news event. Admiral Gaiman was the chairman of the Columbia Accident Investigation Board. And before the investigation was complete, Admiral Gaiman uh, made a statement in the press about the Space Shuttle Program Safety and Mission Assurance Organization. He said, there's no there there. And what he was referring to, he felt like that organization didn't have the resources, skills, expertise to provide the shuttle program with a second perspective on problem as challenging as foam loss off the external tank, which caused the accident. And so I I was given the action by the administrator, Sean O'Keefe at the time, to address this issue. And so the concept we came up with was to have an organiz- an independent organization with experts from across the country that could come in at any time and help a program with its most difficult problems. So that's what we set out to do when we established the NASA Engineering and Safety Center following uh, the Columbia accident. And these pieces of tile fell off on the ascent And in some ways, the voyage was doomed even as it proceeded to go into orbit and do its thing, but it was not going to make it through. And there were probably people that knew that throughout the entire length of the mission. That itself is an unimaginable thing to carry. But what should the agency have done differently before the tiles fell off, I guess, is really the question, one of the questions you had to answer. It was uh, foam that came off the external Foam, right, yeah. And hit the space shuttle orbiter left-hand wing, which uh, the leading edge of that wing is reinforced carbon-carbon, but it's fairly thin, and it cracked one of those reinforced carbon-carbon panels. And everyone knew at the time that it this foam came off. We film Ascent, and we have a team that looks at all those films and alerted everybody that that happened. I think the thing that, in hindsight, going back, what should have been done is to get a some type of photograph assessment of that wing uh, before the Columbia re-entered. Could that have prevented what happened from happening? It couldn't have prevented it from happening, but it could have had us attempt some kind of 
repair, rescue, anything that we could have done at the time if we'd known how severe the damage was. Sure. And in the larger picture then, this engineering and safety group that you established, what did it do differently in the large sense than was being done at NASA at that time? So I think what the NASA Engineering and Safety Center provides is a group of experts that can come in and look at a problem like that and say, hey, no, you need to do this or that differently and just provide the leaders a different perspective on a problem in order to make a better decision going forward. And that's really the key to that organization. It sounds like your challenge was not so much engineering, but human relations and getting people to accept a new approach. Oh, absolutely. The Columbia Accident Investigation Board thought at the time the shuttle program was too insular and tried to solve its problems with the resources it had at hand, rather than bringing in folks from the outside to take a look at what they're doing. And so what I'm proud to say is after nearly 20 years, the NASA Engineering and Safety Center has really become ingrained in the NASA safety culture, and all the programs utilize these experts to look at their most challenging problems. So that's really rewarding after 20 years. So the idea then, the basic idea is there is third party or objective assessment of everything going on and people learn to accept that judgment and say, yeah, you know, you're right. We should do this differently and that'll increase safety. That's exactly it. And uh, they've done over 1,000 assessments now over 20 years and had a tremendous impact on all of NASA's missions. We're speaking with Ralph Rowe, Jr. He recently retired as NASA's chief engineer, and he's a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. And I can't help but asking, how do you think things might have been different in the way the whole Columbia program went had your organization been in place prior to it? Great question, Tom. The the real opportunity to break the chain of events that led to Columbia was really a couple of flights earlier. We had a very similar foam loss from the external tank that hit the left-hand solid rocket booster instead of hitting the orbiter and put a four-inch ding in this thick metallic ring. That should have been the perfect close call for the folks in the program, myself included, to say, hey, we need to investigate this further. Unfortunately, though, at the next flight readiness review where we reviewed this problem, We decided it wasn't a safety of flight concern and we could continue to fly. But if there had been an independent organization like the NASA Engineering and Safety Center that we could have brought in and looked at this problem with a fresh set of eyes and the right technical expertise, I think uh, given how this model has worked since then, that they could have convinced us with data that, hey, we need to investigate this further. And that was really the opportunity, I think, to stop what happened in Columbia. And bringing in an organization with a fresh set of eyes to look at your problem is uh, not unique to the aerospace industry and I think can benefit everybody if you just take the time. When you have a tough technical problem, bring folks in to look at it and give you a different perspective. Someone else might have said, well, yes, that piece didn't penetrate over there, but if that piece was 10% bigger which it could be, then then you'd have a hole all the way to the skin and then the game's up. That kind of thing is what someone might have said. Exactly right. You know, a few seconds later, a few seconds earlier, the release of that foam and it hits in a different location and has a different impact. So absolutely right. 
And you sound like a soft-spoken gentleman, maybe with some southern roots there, I'm detecting through your speech. Did you ever, you know, early on have to yell and scream and holler and stamp your feet at people? Or, I mean, how did you, you don't sound like a guy that goes around with a baseball bat. Actually, it was very difficult to get programs to utilize this organization at the beginning. In fact, the very first assessments we did, the administrator had to tell the programs that we were going to utilize this organization. So they were directed to utilize us. What's changed over 20 years is now program managers, you know, look for us to come help. And that's really a, a huge achievement in, in seeing that the evidence that the culture actually changed. Any examples that you recall in your mind of a specific type of engineering challenge where people came to agreement, yeah, we need to do this differently or do this this way instead of that way? One of the first ones that I remember, again, with the space shuttle program, which was our focus, obviously, right after the accident, we had the foam loss off the external tank was the original cause for the Columbia accident, but there were more areas of foam and ice on the tank that could do the exact same thing. And so some of those areas needed to be repaired and design changed in order to eliminate that risk. And so the ice frost ramps on the external tank often would liberate ice, which would impact the space shuttle orbiter also. So the NASA Engineering and Safety Center helped work on a redesign of that area. So we also changed the design of the ice frost ramps, which was very good too. Which points up two kinds of engineering approaches to a problem. One is to sort of patch it to get through the next time around. The other is to design it out in the first place. Right. You you really want to do everything you can to design those kind of risks out and not have to operationally control risks. So if you can... Obviously, the best thing to do is design out a risk. And so now that you've retired, you've left NASA. I see lots of trophies and plaques and citations in the background here. We're on a Zoom call, which listeners won't be able to see, unfortunately. What are you doing? And you're still in touch. I'm still in touch with everybody. It's only been, uh, you know, six months or so. So I talk to the folks quite often. But uh, actually, really, my wife and I both just retired. And so we're doing some traveling that we haven't done in a long time. Yeah, so you're thinking about the aircraft you're on and the design and the safety culture of the airline and so forth. Are you one of those kind of flyers that thinks about all that, or you pretty much enjoy the flight? No, I enjoy the flight. I enjoy flying anytime I get an opportunity. Ralph Rowe Jr. retired as NASA's chief engineer recently, and he's now a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Thanks so much for joining me. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to more about Ralph at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Pentagon's decades-old planning and budgeting process doesn't have a lot of fans, least of all the people who work with it every day. Now the American Society of Military Comptrollers has been surveying the DOD financial management workforce for their views about the planning, programming, budgeting, and execution process as part of a task force on PPBE reform. Among other things, the society found 71% of the workforce thinks PPBE keeps the department from quickly responding to its mission needs. Rich Brady is the society's CEO. Retired Major General Cameron Holt, a member of the group's PPBE task force. 
They talked about the findings with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. You hear Holt first. There's a consensus building around the idea that the PPBE process definitely needs to be reformed. You know, what parts of it are are the worst or have lost responsiveness uh, varies uh, by the background of the survey respondent. But um, it's definitely a clear message that reform is necessary and, in my view, deep reform uh, potentially necessary. I, I think there's a lot of conversations that go around about, hey, you know, maybe we just need to update it a little bit here and there. But fundamentally, it's, it, it works just as well as it did when McNamara gave it to us in 1961. Uh, but for me, Jared, it, it really has to do with competitiveness as a nation. And as you probably know, I come from more on the execution side, the contracting and program management background Mm -hmm. with a little bit of requirements uh, experience as well um, from my 32 years in the Air Force. And uh, the repercussions or the loss of competitiveness that occurs downstream of the PPBE process and execution, uh, particularly with the very sophisticated adversary that we have in China, that is using what I would call hybrid warfare tactics against us, not just military, but economic and technology transfer, uh, both that that they steal and that that they actually buy. And we have come to a place where, believe it or not, the way that we resource national security in the United States is more centrally planned than the Chinese Communist Party and how they resource their own national security. And so as a consequence, they can move much faster to respond to emerging technology, ironically, even within our own country. So they have more access to our young startups and technologists uh, than we do. And I would say the number one reason why is, is the PPBE process. And so I've, I'm, I'm, I've got a, a pretty clear sense of urgency and it's not just about efficiency and effectiveness. And the very first question in your very first survey gets straight at this. You asked people to agree or disagree with the statement, existing PPBE processes enable us to quickly respond to changing mission needs, innovations, and technological advancements after a budget has been submitted. 71% said they disagreed or strongly disagreed with that. What, what does that tell you when the people who are working inside the system all day, every day, have that overwhelming a view of it? Yeah, I think it's it's just what I told you. When, when you're actually in the trenches and you're trying to get something done and you see clear uh, opportunities to optimize the spend, and you're powerless to do it because of the degree of micromanagement that happens starting from the appropriation level in statute. And again, this is not against the people involved in the process. This is just a process that has gotten more and more complex and, and heavy laden over time. Uh, but we really need to start taking a clean sheet paper uh, approach and say, look, Shouldn't a program executive officer, while you're negotiating between two different weapons, be able to optimize the money between those two programs to to buy the best value result in real time uh, without uh, an omnibus reprogramming act or or some other act of Congress, whether it be above threshold reprogrammings, which have become very political, or other processes in execution that are stymied? So I think that's why you're seeing a groundswell of practitioners, uh, you know, 71% in this case say, yeah, we, we've got to change. I, we're watching the technology walk out the door and we can't do anything about it. Rich, yeah, Jared, go ahead. Yeah, if I could jump in also, I'll give you some examples as well, uh, why some of our members, again, who work this process day in and day out may feel that way. 
you know, at a certain point in time, when you look at the length of the process, when you start uh, the programming phase, for example, two, two and a half years out, uh, but at the end of the day, you only adjust, uh, you know, one to two percent of the overall budget, you get to the point where you're wondering if really if marginal costs exceeds marginal benefit, uh, if those marginal gains that you're achieving by adjusting a, a very small percentage of the budget are worth all that time and effort, the various committees, the uh, commissions, the, the groups that meet uh, at multiple levels throughout the military, from the operating forces all the way up to the Pentagon, uh, is it worth uh, all of that effort uh, to just adjust that small amount? And then second, secondarily, once you do get the appropriation, uh, they're typically late, right? Uh, we're dealing with continued resolutions year after year. So when the funding comes down in the spring, and, and, and I have been there where the funding uh, was approved in the March April timeframe. So the, by the time you get it, it's May already. You may have about four months to spend uh, over 50 to 60 percent of your, your annual budget. You're not looking to, to spend it on what your, your, your highest uh, priorities are. You're just looking for a means of spending it quickly because you've got to be at 100 percent by the end of the fiscal year. So it leads to uh, inefficient uh, and ineffective spending. It's really an exercise and, you know, where can I spend it? Not what do I really need to spend it on or what's going to have the most uh, you know, capability impact or warfighting impact. Another one of the questions in the surveys gets to some of the delays on, on the front end of the process, which is developing the justification books and sending them up to Capitol Hill. 64% said they felt that those things are out of date by the time Congress ever sees them. Can, for for non-budget folks in the audience, can, can you give us a little bit more of a sense of what that timeline looks like? I mean, for example, the J books that Congress is working on right now as it puts together the 24 NDAA, when was that actually written? Yeah, they were probably started uh, the drafting of those over two years ago. Um, uh, and obviously, they're refined over time. And in some respects, uh, uh, you know, sometimes if uh, you don't have a lot of change to your program, you're copying and pasting from from previous years. Uh, I think I saw a figure somewhere that said that each page of the J books uh, justifies somewhere over $30 million of funding. So it's important information, but the process really hasn't been updated much. And there's two components to this that, that I have heard as well. One is a is a training piece uh, that uh, maybe our people are not given the amount of time uh, and training necessary to enable them to produce good justifications. Uh, and the second piece is uh, te a technology component that maybe there's a better way leveraging technology, whether that's XBRL for government or some other program uh, to uh, to digitize a lot of this effort. So it's you're not required to do this year over year uh, and create these new books, that there is some of this that could just be rolled over uh, from one year to the next. Rich Brady, CEO of the American Society of Military Comptrollers, and you also heard from Cameron Holt, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Contracting, and he's now a member of the Society's PPBE Reform Task Force. To hear their full conversation with Jared Serbu, check out the latest edition of On DoD at federalnewsnetwork.com slash ondod. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 